0: I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation about the business of design. No pretty sofas, rugs, or lamps. Just the nuts and bolts. You might say, hey Josh, you talk about the business of design quite often. What makes this any different? And you would be right. I try to bring you different perspectives about the business as often as I can from as many different perspectives as possible. It's critical to both the success of the industry, as well as those that make up the business of design from designers, architects, editors, writers, photographers, tradespeople, showroom managers, manufacturers, and even clients to understand the, how the machine works to keep it working. Even when there has been such upheaval as there has been since late Q1 2020. Let's be honest here. Not many were prepared for the events resulting from the pandemic. To be honest, I I don't know any that were totally prepared for it. Many are still not prepared for what comes next. Why? Well, because we have no idea what's coming next. Or do we? This is another installment of the Wellness and Thought Leadership series presented by Thermosol. The series is being produced to provide insight about issues exactly like this. I'm editing this episode at the end of September 2021, according to multiple reports. There are now 62 ships off the California coast waiting to offload cargo. Some of this product might be yours. A few months ago, I was reporting that there were 40 ships waiting at these very same ports. Now, at the very same time, there are over 150 ships waiting to load cargo off the coast of China. Not everything comes from China, but much of it does. And if not the whole product, components. And if it isn't getting loaded, it can't get delivered. This is not the only challenge right now, but it is a glaring one and one that you must first recognize in order to address many of the others. So my conversation today is with Keith Granite. Keith Granite, president of his consulting firm Granite & Associates, has been advising those in the business since 1991. He's the author of Business of Design, a groundbreaking business book specifically for the design trade. This book was groundbreaking and led to Changes in the way many designers view the business of design and their roles as business owners, not just creatives. Granite now has a new book about the business of design. And listen, if you are going to wait 20 years for the sequel, the expectations are obviously going to be high, and the timing for this could not be better. This book covers new ideas relating to changes in the design business today, markedly different from what it was like in 1991 when his first book was released. The Business of Design, Balancing Creativity and Profitability is the subject of this episode of Convo by Design and another edition of the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership series presented by Thermosol. If you are not already subscribing to the podcast, please do. So you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. And now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So make sure to check that out. And if you need some help, ask Alexa or Siri for help. Just say, hey, Siri, play Convo by Design podcast. And she will. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online at walkerzanger.com. You know, it's funny because the first thing I wanted to ask you about, you know, you, you wrote the business of design in 2011. 2010, 2011, right? It came out in 2011, yeah. And, you know, as long as I've been doing the podcast for seven years, going on eight years, the, the, the conversation about the business of design really hasn't started in earnest the way that we talk about it today uh, un, until recently again. And I'm, and I'm curious, when you wrote that book, was, was it because we were coming off the recession and the the design trade got hit so hard?
1: Um, You know, not really. I had that book in me for years and I think I started thinking about it in 95. Um, But then just, you know, wanted to build my practice and, you know, really understand the design community from every angle before I publish anything. And so I do think the timing of it was good, um, clearly because of us coming off the recession um, but i don 't think it was you know started by the fact that um, you know I just think we 've needed to pay attention to the business side of design for years and and we haven 't done very well in schools, although that 's certainly getting better, and there haven 't been that many um, practicing um, educators who really know how to teach it right so I felt like it was really necessary
0: I, I kind of want to challenge that statement a little bit you said in in the schools it's getting better I, I do think it's getting better but I'm I don't necessarily think it's getting better because they're learning it in the school explain that so I feel like you know in the in the design trade, in the on the, it's interesting because you really do have to break it out into two categories: architecture and design. Architects have, for the most part, I, w- I don't want to say always, but you know, f- for the longest time, they've they've done a a better job treating their business like a business. Designers have have had more of a creative approach traditionally to the manner in which they treat their, their firm and their business. And I think it's never been more evident than when social media got popular because Mm -hmm. then you got to see the inner workings of the back office and you could see who was organized and who wasn't organized by their feeds and their flow. And I, I just, I still don't think that the education, the formal education side has done, um, the work to teach designers how to start a business, form a business, operate with a business in mind, and be business-minded where you focus on y- your brand. Does right. that make sense?
1: Completely. I, I guess the reason I say it's getting better is because the few schools that I've been working with are doing a tremendous job, like SCAD, where you know, they really are teaching how to build a creative career. Um, the New York School of Interior Design... Um, uses our software to teach how to purchase and manage a business. Um, you know, some of the other schools are coming on board slowly. I think ten schools have adopted my book as their pro practice class. Um, so you know, I, it's a small sort of
0: um, you know
1: pedal in the in the ocean, but it's we're getting
0: there. Yeah, we, we are we are getting there, and you know it's interesting too, because I think that in the past, you you would have really successful designers, your Bunny Williams, your Elsie DeWolves, you, you know your your iconic interior designers, but it was always about the work. You never saw behind the curtain you never really understood or saw what they were doing from a business standpoint that helped them launch their practices i think we have modern masters like um martin lawrence Ballard, like like katherine ireland like um you know tim timothy corrigan you know tim i think is a is a and he i believe he's he's one of your clients perhaps i'm not sure
1: he's a past client and he he, he did come out of the business world
0: He did. He came from the advertising agency side, you know, so he really understood the idea of brand and USP, unique sales proposition and how to, how to both take the work that you do and make a business around it so that people understood the product that they were getting from you. I'm curious um, the difference in the business. And it's so funny because I, when you said, that you started ideating this concept for the book in what 95 and i'm thinking okay 95 and he publishes it in 2011 you have a very long runway for a project
1: <laughs> but, I'm, for sure. hey, but just I'm, I'm curious have we is this started yes okay. yes yeah are we good with right. that yeah of course i just okay. want to be sure um yeah i mean i think that that yeah, of course that's a long runway um just because sort of the concept to create the book was there. Um, and I'll be honest, I, it came out of a conversation I had with Barbara Berry, who was one of my first sort of high-end interior design clients, that we wrote her business plan and did her summer licensing. And she's like, there's a book in you. And I said, I think there is, but I need more experience. So we, we let that runway sort of take its course uh, to get there.
0: What do you think has, has changed in the business of design since you published that book?
1: Well, it's, um, it's, it's very timely you ask me that question because we are reintroducing a new edition of the book in, um, looks like it's now gonna be June for next year, um, because there has been so much that's t- changed over the last decade. And I would say the key components, there's a lot that's still very much, you know, a business is a business, but there's a lot that's changed in our industry. Um, Certainly marketing is a big issue because 10 years ago, we weren't even thinking about Instagram as a marketing tool. And we were counting on the publications that, you know, are less and less these days. Um, HR, who our employees are, that we live longer, and that we have multiple generations that are working under one roof, and how do you manage their different, you know, goals and incentives. I also think that as an industry, especially in interior design, the consumer has become much more comfortable, as has the designers, on buying online and being able to buy luxury goods that didn't exist 10 years ago. I mean, some of those sites like Gilt and One Kings Lane, you know, only came about First Dibs probably a little earlier, but First Dibs was really just a marketing tool, but the actual comfort of doing e-commerce online for high ticket items is within this last decade, which has made a major change to our industry.
0: It is, and I'm curious too, you know, when you talk about the business, I think there there was... a certain amount of protection around designers when it came to pricing and business model because you know pricing you had to be in the in the good old days the good old days you had to be a designer to take your clients into the pacific design center and go visit the showrooms when that became open to anyone i think it it spun the design community a little bit, and I think the second hit was when the internet became ubiquitous and and you could price you know I, I talk to designers all the time, and one of their you know complaints is still that they can get priced on anything, and for them to justify their worth and what they do is is a really scary proposition and i think it speaks back to understanding the business side of it so that you can you can insulate yourself as a as a business owner you know you can you can isolate the value propositions that you have and really lean on those so that pricing is is just sort of it's one of those parts of business but it's not the business as a whole
1: yeah i think there's two parts of that conversation the first is how do you communicate your value? Because your value is definitely not based upon your pricing. Because look, you and I can go buy all the same goods that Catherine Ireland buys to put in someone's house. Are our homes gonna look like Catherine Ireland designed them? No way. You know, she knows proportion and scale and how to put it all together and color. And so you can, anybody can buy anything. It's the question of where's, where's the real talent? The talent is putting those items together in a way that you know makes for a beautiful space. The other part of that is that I do honestly believe that designers should get better pricing than the consumer. There should be two-tier pricing. And if you look at any industry out there, if your salespeople are your greatest customers, you give them better pricing, right? So if I'm a consumer and I buy one sofa, sure, I should get some kind of discount for it if, if the manufacturer wants to give it to me. But that designer who buys a thousand of those sofas should certainly get a bigger discount. And I think any manufacturer who doesn't understand that doesn't understand their, their, their consumer, which is both retail
0: and to the trade. Do you think that there is a disconnect because there really isn't one central organization that speaks for the design community?
1: You know, I, there are plenty of people who say, you know, there's, there's one or two that try, but the problem is that years ago, the, in the AIA got caught, or not caught, but got in trouble for trying to do price fixing by making recommendations. And so people stay clear of that. Um, I, you know, I, I say this often, it's, if you ask 10 designers, you what their fee structures are, you're going to get 10 different answers. Yeah, I think consistency is what um, we need more of. I don't know if we need a, a lobbying agency or an organization to do that. I just think as an industry, we need to support each other. You know, I'll look at the real estate industry, most real estate agents charge 6%. And they'll charge, they'll they'll go a little lower if it's a you know, multi-million dollar property. But it's we as consumers of their services accept that. In the interior, or I'm going to charge you 25%, or I'm going to charge you a percentage of construction, or whatever my fee basis is. They, you know, they try to negotiate it because, again, it's a luxury item that, um, you know, you have to be able to sell that value. And if you can't sell it, and many people feel weakened by that they negotiate off their rates which i don't think is good for your business it's not fair to your other clients and it's not fair to you
0: i have said for a for a very long time that and i i i talk to designers about this all the time i think that designers are akin to fine artists when we're talking about the work and you know, it's very easy because you hear designers talk all the time about how their clients will price them and how, how it becomes a a product of, you know, pricing the materials that they use to come up with the finished product. And I equate them to a fine artist. You know, nobody ever says, well, I love that Picasso, but he only paid $20 for the frame and there's probably only a hundred dollars in paint. And, you know, maybe there's a couple bucks in there for the brushes. So it's only worth the product of the materials. It, it, when you put it in that kind of argument, it's, it's, a, it's a stupid argument. I mean, it's silly, it doesn't make sense. But when, when people will say to a designer, well, you're getting this, this sofa for that, why am I paying that plus this? It's like, well, because there's an art and there's a mastery and there's an education and an experience level that goes behind that. And I think that's why I think it's it's so valuable what you do. Um, shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you about um, the leaders of Design Council because sure. I think I think that this is just really I think you know the 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 organization that you that you started with Meg Toborg. I want you to talk about why you started this and sort of what you do and and I've got a ton of questions about it, but I think these are the types of things that bring the design community to bet, to, together. And you've been doing this for quite a while. How did it start?
1: So it started 15 years ago. Um, and it came about for the desire to create community that didn't exist in the high-end, mostly residential and hospitality world. Um, it started because um, I was hired by a company to build a deeper relationship between... Um, the design community and that particular manufacturer and I said well why don 't we do these roundtables around the country and find out we 'll do a half day of me talking about best business practices with them, and then they 'll give you a half day of talking about your product and what they what you want to hear from them and We left after six cities San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, uh, New York, and miami and Boston. And we said, oh my God, all they want to talk about is the business. And they just, no matter, every time we discussed anything, business just came up and up and up and said, we should do a summit that actually brings these people together and talks about business. And that's how it sort of got off the ground. And I think we had 97 people, at the first one, and I believe 60 of them were clients of mine. Um, And it was really about people just wanting to talk to each other about how they run and It just snowballed into this, you know, it had took a life of its own. And I hear time and time again, I wouldn't have gotten a project if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't know this person if it wasn't for you. I wouldn't be able to do whatever because I have this community that I can count on. Um, We, as an organization, decided to make it fairly exclusive in that we wanted, because people travel thousands of miles, to come to our annual event. And we also do workshops throughout the year. And we really wanted, when you're sitting down at dinner, for the person sitting next to you to be somebody that was worth taking a 6,000-mile trip to get to. And so we really want, we didn't do it because we wanted to be exclusive of, you know, a certain type of person. We really wanted principals who run their own business. To be able to share information with each other. And we've maintained that through the years. Um, and it's, it's been wildly successful, just from, if nothing else, from building a community and it feeding our souls.
0: Uh, it really
1: has helped our industry, we believe, in a big way.
0: I, I totally agree. And I, it's interesting too, just looking at some of the places that you've been, you've done this in Aspen and Marrakesh and Berlin, Buenos Aires, Prague, Kyoto, Dublin. You've been, you've been all over the world. And I I think that it's so interesting. You've done, you've done these in the States, you've done them domestically, but you've done them internationally as well. And I think that there's something to, there's a value in the experience of getting out of your surroundings and being someplace else that is incredibly aspirational and, and inspiring and having this conversation about the business and design with people who are um who are of equal interest, right? Yeah, completely. And
1: and you know, and their egos are all checked at the door. They come in with an open mind to learn and to be a part of a community, which is You know really wonderful um (laughs) excuse me i um you know i think back about all the places we've been and i think the truth is is that what we've learned from traveling so far and wide is one designers get their inspiration from travel it also puts them a little bit outside their comfort zone because you'll notice the cities that we pick are not the Londons and the Parises and the places that everybody can go to. They're really cities that people have on their bucket list that they want to learn more about. And they learn and experience that together. And with that experience, they're building memories that are connecting them as a community. And the other thing that we've noticed is that from those inspirations of, say, going to Kyoto or Marrakesh, you can look look ahead a year or two and the magazine you know, photographs will reflect what they learned in those cities, the projects they've done, whether it's a a yoga room designed because of an experience in Kyoto or a, you know, the use of amazing lighting that they got in Marrakesh or textiles, that all has come to life in the pages of the magazines because of those trips.
0: It's interesting that you say that um, and I completely agree with you. It, it's really interesting how in so many of the interviews that I've done over the past seven years, the the concept and idea of travel comes up in, in the first, you know, two or three things when you talk about inspiration. And to put the two together, I think, is brilliant. I think it's incredibly smart. Um, I'm curious, too, because you weren't able to go anywhere this year.
1: Right.
0: And this... It's so funny because this year, 2020, it's just, it's the year that keeps giving, right? And I do think, and I think this based on, you know, I imagine that the conversations you've had are very similar to the conversations that I've had. And because we're all having them, the business of design and architecture it has been forever changed after this year. I think that, um, what we see coming out of, out of this is almost like, a, again, a year zero where it's gonna be really interesting to see how, how the industry changes. I'm curious what you've heard as far as the, the, the near-term ramifications, the long-term impact that this particular year will have had on the design and architecture industry.
1: You know, it's fascinating because I've done a lot of work, especially in preparation for the book coming out, about what this experience has been like for the last seven months. And this may sound a little awkward, but as an industry, we are a COVID-positive industry. You know, we are, we're seeing tremendous growth because people are sitting around their homes and they're looking and wanting to fix things up they're wanting to move out of cities, they're building homes. We have clients with more potential calls than they can possibly return. There's, there's a lot of movement on the home front and people thinking, rethinking their spaces. I do think that, you know, I've, I've never been a big fan of remote working and because I do believe we're human beings and we are tribal and we, need to be with each other, especially when it comes to creativity, and that the creativity doesn't happen through a Zoom screen. Creativity happens because you're doodling next to somebody, or you're talking to somebody, or an idea pops in your head and you want to talk to somebody about it. And so creativity and mentoring are the two of the toughest things that we're facing being remote working these days. That being said, I do think that the Work environment is forever changed. I don't think that we're going to need the spaces that we've had in the past to work. I do think that there'll be some hybrid of people coming into the office and working from home and being much more flexible with their schedules. Um, you know, I do think that Americans also have very short memories. And if there's a vaccine out there, it may be like, you know, what pandemic? I, you know, I doubt it'll be that drastic, but I do think that we'll move on a little bit. And we may get back to it the way we were. But I do think there's, a diff- there's definitely a paradigm shift in how we're going to work from moving forward. Um, and the importance of space. I've, I think that we've been a lucky industry in all of this. Many people have not been. But the design world has, has actually done
0: well in this pandemic. It, it has. And I think in large part to a point that you just made that we have very short uh, memories and even shorter attention spans. And, you know, if you ask people what, what they think life was like in the, you know, the Spanish flu pandemic of, of what, 18, 18, 1812, right? What the experience was like. Um, you will find that it was it was very very similar to what we have now, and I think that all one really has to do is kind of look at what happened then. You know, the idea of a modern vestibule was was reimagined. A, the new a, a new a new bathroom concept. You know, we don't put we don't put porous un unvarnished wood in bathrooms anymore because it's not a good idea but things like this brought them on you know there were maskers there were anti-maskers there were all of the same things that we're dealing with now and i think it's interesting to sort of look back and see what happened to say okay you know this could possibly happen again in the future i think to your point about us being tribal and the works the workspace is really is really important because you're right, we do need to be in person. This is not the best environment for you and I to be talking. You and I would, would have, you know, would it be a better conversation? Were we in front of each other with a cup of coffee, you know, in an, in an open environment, perhaps? You know, what does that workspace look like in the future? What does it mean for, you know, an upstart city that maybe has the, the type of infrastructure and is ready to absolutely explode because talent is now moving into that environment? And how does that change the way that we think about things? I mean, are these, are these sort of ideas that you're hearing as well?
1: Yeah, actually, I was reading an article today that one of my clients wrote about downtown LA and reimagining the spaces and even rethinking how people live because, you know, There are quite a few, I guess 60% of Los Angeles, Los Angelinos are renters. And, you know, spaces are not necessarily made for as well for multi generational families. And, you know, are we really thinking how we do want to live and continue to live? Um, And how will that shift and change? And what are the spaces that we currently have and how can they be adapted to, you know, different cultural um, desires? So I, I do think that there's a lot to be thought about um, in our industry.
0: So when does the next when does the business of design reissue come out? Um, the manuscript and turned
1: in, so I'm glad to say that, and it should be out in June of 21.
0: So I'm curious. The manuscript is turned in. I imagine you've you've been working on it for a long time into 2020. Did did the events of the pandemic, did the events of 2020 affect how you wrote the book? Absolutely.
1: I and I, I should say because it's a, a a re-release of the original edition, the basis of the book certainly didn't get affected by that, but the way I thought about how our industry is shifting and changing definitely was affected by it, only because, like I just mentioned, um, the workforce, the, the ability to work remotely. There, there was really nothing or little about remote working in the original text, but there's quite a bit about it now and how you manage people um, who are working remotely and how you're going to mentor people and grow them. There's, um, you know, a lot about who people are today and that, you know, I didn't really mention much in the first book about multi-generations, but you've got, you know, baby boomers working with Gen Xs and Gen Y and Gen Z now. And those three, four generations have very different motivations. And how do you make sure you're tapping into each one of them to get the best work out of them? So it addresses, you know, items like that, um, but definitely. And I, I, I'm thinking back about the re- rewrite of the intro, and it
0: starts out with "We're in the middle of a pandemic." Curiously, did did you approach the ideas of social media? Because that was that was obviously not an idea that was that was forefront. In, in the book in 2011, you know, imagining that that's you know that it existed, but it it wasn't as important as it is right now. Do you do you also um, do you, I, I'm curious as to the importance of you know the reason you started the the leadership of Design Council in the in the absence of a central organization to lobby. And negotiate, not negotiate, not collude, but to lobby for you know better pricing for designers. Um, the idea of the ambassador program, which is becoming incredibly popular now, and it almost serves as as small lobbying groups. I, I'm curious if if your approach on those versus the original book in 2011.
1: Well, yes, there's quite a bit about social media and. You know, everything from consistency and how you post and what people are looking at and that it's an important outlook or um, an important view of who you are as a firm on everything from your design work to the product you sell and really paying attention to it in in a way that has become significantly more important than press today. Uh, And you know, I don't know what it means. Like in ten years from now, or are we going to look at that and say, "Can't believe you know we really bought into that," um, but we we have, and you know, it's here to stay for you know, as long
0: as I can tell. Well, you know, let's talk. Let's back up a second and talk about that idea of press. It's so interesting, isn't it? When you know, when when you write a book on the business of design, the main influencers at that time, really are the shelter publications. Right. But they're, but they're not anymore. Um, there's, it's interesting, too, because it's not like there's no value there. They're, they're very, very important. But their role has drastically changed. Are you there? You froze for a minute. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, and I'll tell you, this is one of the things. We freeze. Were we at a coffee shop? in front of each other or in the office having a you know having a conversation we would not freeze so <laughs> there is another there's another benefit to being in in the real world together you know i was just mentioning that the role of the, of the shelter publications, the magazines has, has changed dramatically. You know, I am, I'm a contributor. I'm an editor. I, I am a tactile person. I love feeling the magazines. I love flipping the pages. There's a certain amount of surprise and delight that comes every time you flip the page. Cause you see something new. True. Sure. But our, our society, our, our, our consumption of media has changed dramatically. And that's a big part of it, and I'm and I'm curious. You know, you mentioned the press. Your your thought on that aspect of the business and where where it goes from here, and how designers really do engage in that in that environment.
1: You know, I I, I hope the magazines, like you said, don't go away because I am a tactile person as well. I mean, it's, I write books, so I like feeling and touching things. Are we frozen again? No, I can hear you. Shoot.
0: I can hear you. Okay.
1: Um, And, you know, I, I think that the acknowledgement of being in a magazine or being in a book is fairly significant to your employees, to yourself, to your clients. And the reach is far greater than, you know, even if you have a half a million followers, you still have a different reach when you're in a magazine. And so I I do think it's confirmation because you're not posting it yourself; someone else is saying your work is is being acknowledged as you know great work, and it's worthy of the publication. And I don't think social media could ever take that place, that that need for that acknowledgement. So in that sense, they're all parts of a puzzle, and I think they're all important pieces. And you have to adapt to all of them. You have to have a multifaceted strategy when it comes to marketing your your work and, and your talent.
0: Have you started thinking about how you move forward with the leaders of Design Council? How you, um, how you plan potentially getting everyone back together in the near future? Um, do you do smaller, more localized events? Do you go back to your original idea of going to individual cities with smaller groups, do you, um, you know, do you incorporate a certain video element? I mean, listen, it's harder to do it this way. It's not as personal to do it this way. But right now, this is all we have. Is will this play a role in the in the leaders of Design Council? Do you do you plan? Um, more exposure at events, what do you look at as it relates to your own business moving forward?
1: Well, that's a loaded question. I mean, there's a, there's a lot there to unpack, but I will say we, we really haven't sort of skipped a beat when it comes to communicating with our, our members. As soon as this hit, um, you know, we were all planning on being in Monaco for our next conference. And and Monaco is a home base, but mostly the south of France because um, there's just such amazing art and architecture there. And obviously, it couldn't happen. Um, everything shut down, and so we've postponed it till March of 21, which we're still not certain that that's actually going to happen. I mean, it happens because they have a lot of our money, and we, we would like to you know at least get that value out of it. Um, but immediately, Meg and I came up with this idea of a, a program um, we called elevations and we brought in speakers. We started with actually an infectious disease doctor from University of Pennsylvania and then moved through it to leadership coaches and you know managing um, you know remote working and then design inspiration. so we this this month alone we had two speakers. Uh, a man named Keith Recker on color and the, and the, you know, the history of color Uh, and then Charlotte Moss talking about how she gets inspiration through um, her collages. And so we've been introducing, uh, we have Brad Ford coming this Thursday, talking about, you know, everything he's been doing with the sort of the, his makers um, program that he's been doing uh, in the Northeast. And so we, have kept our community together through asking them what they need from us and then giving them resources through Zoom talks. We've had cocktail parties and celebrated events with people. It's nothing like you know being together for sure, but we still seeing people's faces and knowing that connectivity still exists was very important to us. And we continued that over this past seven months uh,
0: and it was, it's been successful. During the same time that we've got the pandemic, we've also got this this social injustice, race. It's just become something that is that was brought to the forefront. And it's not like many people were surprised because these are deep-rooted, deep-seated, long-time issues. And design is one of those issues as well, or industries as well, where diversity hasn't really been a forefront in the topics that are discussed. And it's interesting because I, you know, I had I got a I got a front row seat for this um, last year during West Edge here in LA. Um, I, I produce all of the programming. For, for West Edge. And I produced a panel, <clears throat> excuse me, I produced a panel um, called Design Diversity, Crafting Our World the Way It Should Be. And I had four faces of color. Um, I had an amazing panel. I had um, uh, Brian Pinkett from Landry. I had Rod Wood- Ron Woodson. Um, I had uh, Brigham Jane and Bridget Coulter. And the idea was to just to talk about it stemmed from a previous discussion where at an industry event in New York, the idea of diversity had come up. This is like two years ago. And one of the guests was sitting next to someone who, who stood up and, and a woman, female designer who said, you know, I think it's an important issue, but this really isn't the, the time or place for it. And, you know, that's about two years ago. And they were relating the story. It's like, you know, we should have this conversation and the idea was if not if not now then when and if if not us then who this was last october and the first question during this panel at west edge and i just had to cringe but the first question was you know it's great that you're doing this but why is this the only panel that has to do with diversity and it was a good question and it got me thinking just a little bit more about the manner in which the conversations come up and that we have the conversations about, you know, because, and it's hard to sort of express it in words, how diversity affects design directly affects the work, but it directly affects the business. And I would imagine that that's, that's a topic that you have, have had, uh, come up a- as well, and I'm curious: a, if if it has come up, and b, how how you've addressed it, and some of your thoughts on how that idea of diversity and design and architecture um, will affect the business moving forward. And just you know, one other thing to preface it: I, I, again, at West Edge, I had conversations with two people. First was 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 Brian Pinkett, who you know who said he he didn't have any real um, barriers to entry, but he was also so crystal clear on what he wanted to do and when he wanted to do it from such a young age that I don't know if there was a barrier that he wouldn't have just run through it anyway and possibly not even noticed. The second was Jean Brownhill, um, who mentioned the same thing to me, that she she wasn't even exposed to the idea of architecture or design as a little girl. And it, it just it got me thinking a little bit more, and I'm I'm curious as to as to your thoughts.
1: Oh, it's it's a wonderful question because it definitely you know deserves our attention. And the question really is, how how early do you start? Because, like you said, if they weren't exposed to it as a young child, then that probably has some influence as to who actually enters those professions. And you know, I think it has something to do with economic and social impact as far as where people's, you know, status is in the world and what they're exposed to. You know, if you're exposed to a great education, then you have an exposure to lots of opportunity. And if you're not, your opportunity becomes limited. And so I don't think as an industry where we go out and say, we're going to be culturally neutral, or we're going to be um, you know, they used to say architecture is a white man's world, you know, and the schools were, you know, pretty much filled with white men going to architecture school. Um, I, my mother's cousin was one of the first women to graduate Cooper Union um, as an architect and worked for many years for A.C. Martin here in L.A. Um, but she had the ability to be exposed to that at an early age. So the, really the question is, and I have a brother who's in arts education, um, in fact, up until recently, he was the president of Lincoln Center. And he would say to me, you have to go out in the world and expose these kids to what culture means and what, what's available to them in order for them to be interested in it. And it, he he did this, uh, he had an independent um, company that he, that he formed that he worked with Carnegie Hall years ago. And he asked me to come to one of the sessions and it was called cultural exchange. And so the Carnegie Hall would be filled with kids from New York City public schools. And then on the screen was kids from Mumbai, who were learning cultural experiences of dance and, and uh, music um, and poetry from each of those different countries. And after the session, I said to him, you know, it's really interesting. But when I look at your audience, why is it that all the white kids are in the front seats? And, Everybody else is in the back. And he said it has nothing to do with the, the fact that um, you know, they're white or black. It has everything to do with the inner city school kids have to take the bus or the subway, and they get there later. And the other kids arrive early because they have a private school bus that picks them up or you know, they are a well-funded city school. And so it wasn't about who they were, it's where they were going. And to me that was fascinating. And so if you could infiltrate all of those, you know, cultural differences and expose the design world to those kids, I think you start there. And then eventually we suddenly have a much more diverse industry. I don't think it's like, you know, look, I love Brian, I love Ron Woodson, I love Bridget Romanek. You're just throwing them out on the screen all the time just to say, look, here's a, an African American or a black person who has been successful. Yes, they're brilliant, they're talented, and they deserve all of that. Um, but that's not where you start. I think you have to start by starting young and exposing them to the opportunities that are available. Because if they have talent, they have, you know, they should have as much opportunity to express that talent as anybody else. Um, you know, the world just isn't that fair. And, but we can, we can do our best to try to make it more, you know, fair. Uh,
0: and, yeah, and, you know, fairness aside, I think that the, the idea of exposure is, is somewhat, of a, it's somewhat of a leveling tool, is it not?
1: Completely. I mean, even when I talk about leaders of design, the fact that we can expose somebody to a flower arranging, you know, exhibition in Kyoto... Um, exposes them to a whole different culture that they never, no matter how well educated they are, they never saw that before. Or serving them, you know, sushi being carved by a Michelin star chef in a temple. It's a once in a lifetime experience. It's exposure. And the more you can expose people to different, you know, areas. I mean, I've always believed in the atelier concept where you find the talent and you give them a studio to, you know, Work on that talent and develop it, and then promote them and I think it 's worked in many industries and many crafts for years, and we could be better at that as well
0: agreed um, keith I, I I so appreciate your time today. I just want to want to remind everyone the the business of design is is available the business of creativity, which you published in two thousand and sixteen is also available and then those would be great primers for the re-release of the business of design in, uh, in, in 2011. So they have something to read while they, while they wait for that. Fair enough.
1: Yeah. I just give one shameless plug. To also please, please. During this time, you know, with remote working, um, you may or may not know that I'm the CEO of studio designer, the software company, and we have seen tremendous growth In our user base, because of people's need to work remotely. And we're actually been able to give them the tools to do their work and communicate directly with their clients and vendors software. So not that I want to shamelessly promote it, but it's been a really valuable tool. And we've seen tremendous growth over the last seven months because of it.
0: Listen, you know what, the, I will tell you, I don't think that there's anything to, to apologize for. And I, I don't think that the plugs are shameless. And I'll, I'll tell you why, Keith, honestly, because you know, the process of discovery has probably been one of the most challenging things that has, in, in the conversations that I've had, discovery of new product when you can't talk to reps, discovery of new opportunities and new product when you're not going to trade shows and you can't go to the design center discovery of changing. I mean, listen, seven months ago, if you would have said the word Zoom to anyone in the design or architecture industry, nine out of 10 would have had no idea what you were talking about. And yet now some people are absolute experts and everyone is a, is a content producer. So I, I think that, the, you know, anytime someone is exposed to a new product or service that can help them, the learning curve is 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 shrunk. And I think it's beneficial. So I I certainly appreciate you bringing that up.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have to say it all sort of fits with what I'll call my magnetic north, which is the business of design. And that is, whether it's my books or the software or the consulting I've done, it's really about bettering our industry to be better designers through creativity and running a better business. Because the stronger your business is, the more creative you actually are because you're not worrying so much about you know, whether you're going to, where that next project's coming from or how you're going to pay your employees.
0: I love that you saved the, the most powerful quote for the absolute end of, end of our conversation. <laughs> Keith, this was great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you bringing me on and nice seeing you again. Thank you, Keith. Excellent catching up with you. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for presenting Convo by Design. You were remarkable and appreciated. Thank you, Thermosol, for presenting the Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series. And thank you for listening. As you may have noticed, Convo by Design is bringing you design talent from all across the country. And it's not just about L.A. and New York, but Maine, South Florida, and Portland, Oregon. We are so rich in talent that sometimes we forget some of the gems email me with show suggestions and feel free to suggest a designer architect or other creative you think the editorial team should be aware of thanks again for listening remember why you do what you do and that the business of design is about making better the lives of those we serve until next week be well and take today first